You guys think this is a church potluck or something? I know, where's the food? Here's the food. Let's open it up. The Word of God, if you've got a Bible with you, grab it, open it to 2 Samuel chapter 11. There are Bibles in the back on the shelf. I always wanna make sure you're aware of that. Uh, please grab one if you need one. Take one to a friend. Uh, I, I'm told that we have someone watching online from Wales this morning. So hello to Wales. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> 2 Samuel chapter 11. Let me just... Uh, I pray before we even get into this. Father, your word, your word's perfect, and your word is what we need in a world where there is so much in, in, in terms of lies and deception and confusion and chaos. We need your word. And I pray, Lord, that your word would teach us this morning, and I, and I am praying, Father, for compassionate conviction because I know the things talked about here in this chapter, the things that, that we will discuss here together, uh, Lord, they're difficult things. Difficult. Uh, difficult for some right in the midst of them. Difficult for others who are just tired of the culture. However you slice it, this is not uh, easy teaching, and so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll be here among us and that you will teach us and walk us through these things and give each one of us the insight and the revelation that we need, you're so good at that um, because we're all coming to you this morning and to your word this morning from different places and different situations, different experiences, and only you bring this together. So we come to sit at your feet, Lord Jesus, and be taught of your truth by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. In my 20s and 30s, I chugged Coca-Cola. I'm not kidding, we're talking liters a day. It, well, no, kiloliters. <laughs> I was kilolitering my guts for a couple of decades. I mean, just, I was addicted to it. I may have shared with you that I, as, a, as a youth pastor and working with college students, I would, I would go out to lunch all the time and they just refill, right? They refill, you lose count. You don't realize you've had five or six glasses of Coke and then I'd go home and I didn't like water. I mean, water, it's all I drink now, but water then, no taste, I need something fizzy and of course we had Cokes or Pepsis in the fridge and I would drink them all through the evening. I mean, it, it, was, it was a constant thing and I had no idea what I was doing to my guts at the time. No idea, not a clue. It's not a teaching on Coke, don't worry. But, but wow, and I don't even drink it at all today. If I have soda, I'll have a Sprite rarely because it's just, it's messed with me. I'm paying for it. So the other day, you can imagine my thoughts when, when Chris walks out of the garage and out of our, our garage, uh, freezer out there, he comes out, he's got a Coke in his hand, and Cheryl grabs it right out of his hand and says, nope, and walks the other direction. And we're just like, what, mom, what, mom, what? And she's like, have you had a Coke today? Yeah. Well, you may not have another one. I saw you have one for lunch. You may not have this. Oh, come on, mom. When I, when I move out and I have my own place, he's been with us two years. Yeah. 
when I get out and live on my own, then I'm going to, you know, and it's so funny. And we all said it, and, and then we all got out and lived on our own, and many of us did all the things that we said. Well, I'm gonna do my way, and we found out our way wasn't really that great a way. Uh, I guess with mileage comes a little bit of wisdom. But if you haven't heard this before, listen closely. It was Benjamin Franklin, actually. I went back and looked this up. Benjamin Franklin in Poor Richard's Almanac coined a phrase. John Corson later on as, as pastor, is, I think popularized it at least among many Christians in our culture. Here it is. Sin isn't hurtful because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's hurtful. Let me say that again. Sin isn't hurtful because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's hurtful. It's not the prohibition that makes sin bad. And this is exactly the deception of culture. What the rebellious world argues is you're putting all this stuff on me, man. You're, you're holding me down. You're forcing me into your rules and your regulations. Listen, the, the rules and the regulations typically are based on something. And they're not just arbitrary, especially when it comes to the Lord. He doesn't have arbitrary law. Arbitrary rules that he just one day sat up and thought, okay, let me see if I can come up with 10 that I can really hold them back. And I'm gonna surround those 10 with another 603 for a total of 613 so that I can really oppress these people. No, sin isn't hurtful because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's hurtful. And because the Lord knows what it does to us. God says, don't sin. First and foremost, because he's righteous. He is a righteous, perfect God who does not sin. First John 1, 5, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So he says, don't sin. Don't sin. But he also says that because sin is bad for you. It is bad for me. It's corrupt. It will rot. It will hurt. It will pollute. It will destroy your life. That's, that's what sin does. Sin is simply a word we have that describes the corruption and rot and horror that comes upon a human life that practices such things. And when the Apostle Paul says, Romans 5.20, the law came in so the transgression would increase, the law is not what increased sin. Sin increased because suddenly light was shed on sin and on that which was sinful and sin increased because it was exposed. Because when God gave the law, suddenly we knew, suddenly people could see, oh, that's harmful, that's hurtful, that's wicked, that's evil. Now we could see it. So of course, sin increased. And we know now what it will do, if we'll pay attention. Now again, many people want that 17th Coke. Many people wanna have more, and I can do this, I can handle this. I know that it, that it ravaged your life, but I can handle this. Okay, there are sins of commission, you know, sins that you, you know, you know what you're doing and you do it. And then there are sins of omission, which are all those sins we don't even know that we're sinning, right? That's how sinful we really are, is we have, we're gonna, we're gonna discover, I think, someday how many things we did that we didn't even know. I've had conversation with people before who said, I've lived mostly a good life. I was raised going to church. I was raised a Christian and I, I did mostly all the right things. And I, I, I don't know, I'm, I really struggle with grace because I'm not really sure I need it. Oh, you need it. 
Trust me, you need it. Even for the sins of omission. Then there are also what I call sins of self-delusion. And that's where I know what's right, but I'm gonna ignore it. That's compromising and that's bargaining with what I know to be wrong. It's as written in James chapter four, verse 17, to one who knows the right thing to do and does it not, to him it is sin. You know what's right, but you choose not to do what's right. And I think that's the most dangerous kind of sinning because it cauterizes the conscience. That's the kind of sin where I'm gonna, I know what right and wrong is here, but I'm going to ignore the right, do the wrong, and it starts to fry the brain. It starts to affect that innate sense of right and wrong to where I start to not be able to discern between what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong, what is holy and what is wicked. I start losing that ability. First Timothy 4 verse one, the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. That's one of the most graphic of verses. Because I literally, when I read that, maybe I'm weird, but I, I imagine someone having brain surgery and the doctor pulls out an iron and just goes so that that section of brain will no longer function. And that's exactly how Paul describes when we just, I know, but I'm not gonna. I know this is right, but I'm gonna choose to do something other. Yeah, the law came in so that the transgression would increase, Romans 5.20, but praise the Lord, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why the gospel is such good news. The grace of God in Jesus saves us from sin, but listen to me, it saves us from sin not only after we've committed it, no, the grace of God saves us from sin before we sin. See, the law is grace. God gave the law because God is a God of grace. God gives the warnings because he is a God of grace. God says don't and no and stay away from because he's a God of grace. It is grace that forbids sin. It is grace that prohibits those things which hurt, all those things that, that come of sin. So I, I do pray this morning, I pray that I can bring light to what is a very difficult teaching with grace and with truth. I was praying on the way here as I often do, Lord, compassionate conviction. Compassionate conviction. Help us to be able to hear these things and yes, to be convicted by them at the same time and not to shun them or push them away. We need to learn from God's servant David in his most hurtful season of life. And that's where we pick up at the beginning of chapter 11. Second Samuel chapter seven, verse one, by the way, tells us the Lord had given David rest on every side 
from all his enemies. Chapter eight, verse 15 says, so David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. By the age of 37, David was in Jerusalem and he was ruling and reigning over all of a unified Israel in his ascendancy and there was peace all around and it has been a good run and it has been 13 years and as you open up 2 Samuel chapter 11, David is 50 years old, which is older I think than a lot of people realize. He's in his 50s and verse one tells us that it happened in the spring at the time when the kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and they besieged Rabbah but David stayed at Jerusalem. The opening three words of chapter 11, after all this hard-fought peace and this settled righteous kingdom, the opening three words should disturb us a bit, then it happened. Then it happened. Now, if we know nothing else about this chapter, if we just read the verse first, the first verse, we would say, well, good job, David. That's leadership. You delegated to Joab and to the army, you sent them out and you're staying back now. That's a good king. Send others into the battle, this is what you do. But the verse bears ominous tones. Then it happened. And this is the time when the kings went out to battle, not this king. David stayed home. Now up until now, he used to go out to war, with one exception, back in chapter 10, we noted on Wednesday night that he did this once before in chapter 10, verse seven, that David sent Joab and all the army and all the mighty men and stayed back. So already there's, there's something of a pattern laying in here for David, realizing I don't have to fight every battle. I can let others do the fighting. I can just stay back in Jerusalem. And at the age of 50 now, perhaps the years and the mileage, which would have been heavy on David, he will be dead by the age of 70. But at 50, he has fought all his life. Even as a shepherd, he was fighting lions and bears. And then he fought the Goliath, the giant. And, and then he began fighting for his life. And then he fought for Israel. And so we see this man of war, this, this warrior. And no, no wonder he stays back. I'll let the young bucks do the fighting. <laughs> I'll, I'll let them go out. Besides, my palace of cedar and stone in Jerusalem is awfully comfortable, especially when the breeze comes in through the mountains in the afternoon, way more comfortable than bivouacking with an army out on the hard-packed ground of, of the land of Israel. So he stays back. Proverbs 132 says, for the waywardness of the naive will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. And I'll tell you, physical complacency breeds spiritual apathy. Don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. Physical complacency breeds spiritual apathy. The physical body has an effect on the soul and on the spirit. And, and it is easier 
to let others do the fighting. It, it is, let someone else go out and, and do the work. Let someone else engage in the faith. But you know what? We weren't made for a life of ease. Maybe that comes as a surprise because everything that all advertising does is point us toward a life of ease when someday we'll be sitting on a beach with a corona and a lime and the water's coming in and that's it. That's, that's what we're living for. That's the whole deal right there. That's, that's the thing. How pathetic is that? I don't know about you, but if I'm sitting on the beach out there with a Coke, no, no. I've got a Sprite and I'm out there and the waves are rolling in. After about 10, 15 minutes, I'm starting to get bored. Give me something to do. I want something to do. And I know we need rest and rest is important. Rest is not this discussion this morning. Complacency is a danger even to our spiritual life. David appears complacent and lazy. I'm not reading too much into this when I say he has been lounging about the palace, sleeping in late, even sleeping through the day. I remember doing that in college a few times. I remember after Cheryl and I were married and uh, you know Sunday morning would roll around and, and we knew, unfortunately, that there was a service at 6 p.m. at a local church and they serve communion, so we could just go to that one and, and, you know, and get our communion points and get our teaching points and our worship points for the day. I remember there were Sundays where, I mean, you'd in and out of sleep, in and out of sleep, look at the clock, and it's four in the afternoon. And I remember thinking, I'll never get that day back. That one's gone. <laughs> David's doing that. In fact, that's exactly what he's doing when the chapter opens. Let me show you verse two. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed. He's been sleeping all day. He's bored out of his mind. He's got nothing to do. No one's around. He's just lounging about the palace, sleeping late. Finally, he gets up and he walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. Before his eyes even caught sight of Bathsheba, we get a picture of a lethargic man. This is not the David we know, not the David we've seen up through chapter 10. This is a David who's a fighter, who's strong, and now here he is in a state of morose and lethargy, and that is not good for David any more than it's good for you or me. Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour and a lion's favorite prey is, is lying there sound asleep. Apathetic and spiritually unarmed, David stumbles out onto his roof, wiping the sleep out of his eyes. He's there on the patio Maybe just trying to wake up there in the cool Jerusalem evening air. Matthew, or Mark chapter 13, verse 35 says, be on the alert, Jesus speaking. You do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. Jesus says, what I say to you all, I say, be on the alert. Be on the alert. In fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, Paul picks up on it. He says, you brethren are not in the darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. You're all sons of light and sons of day. We're not of night nor of darkness. 
So then let us not sleep as others do. Let us be alert and sober. Those who sleep do their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Breastplate, helmet, what's he talking about? War. Be an alert fighter. Be one who's up for the battle rather than stumbling about the patio in the evening just up out of bed. That's where we find David. Verse three says, so David, after seeing her, sent and inquired about the woman and said, is, and one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. I will probably say Uriah because that's what we're used to, but it's Uriah is how you would pronounce it. David sent messengers and took her And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. Let me clarify something. It's not when she had, it's actually literally translated after that he lay with her for she had purified herself. Now, why is that important to know? What What the writer here is making a clear distinction, she had purified herself from her period so she was in no place to, uh, so she was safe to not get pregnant or so they thought. She returned to her house and the woman conceived, verse five. And she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. These three verses here, I mean, they explode like in a stunning rapid fire visual sin in progress and it moves so quickly. And I want you to catch that. He's gonna spend a lot more time, the narrative will spend much more time in the aftermath than it does in the actual action of the sin. From start to finish, this hits us and goes by in swift advancement. Note these things, the look. The look in verse two, he saw a woman bathing. Now there's nothing wrong in that moment that he happened to see her. He's on the patio, she's out bathing. I'm not sure how that got, well I know how that got got set up. We have an adversary. I don't know what, her reason was for being out doing that at that time, or or, I, I don't even know. We're not told that. We're just told that he saw a woman bathing. And in that moment, was that sin? Well, no, he saw a woman bathing in the same way you drove up the drive and saw a tree. You know, I, I saw it. This is just a matter of fact, but it was a look followed by, secondly, a gaze. So he saw that she was bathing, verse two goes on and says, he saw that she was beautiful. So now he's locked on. Psalm 101, verse three, which David wrote, he said, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. And that's a great statement of faith and that's a great statement to live by. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. How many worthless things have you seen this week? If I gave you pen and paper, which I'd have to because the internet was out for 24 hours, but if I gave you (laughs) pen and paper to write down, could you write down a list of things that were worthless that your eyes beheld this week? And I guarantee we all could. I'll set no worthless thing before my eyes. How much can your eyes see before it actually begins to affect your heart? Whether it's streaming 
or scrolling or even good old-fashioned reading. I mean, people used to sin before the internet, you know? Setting things before our eyes, what are you looking at? He looks and then he begins to gaze. And, and the next question, and this has been debated by men for, for decades now, at least I've heard this debated most of my life. How long can you look at a beautiful woman before it turns to lust? Because every guy wants to know, how long am I allowed before it's a bad thing? You know, ladies, you can ask the same question. How long can you look at a good-looking dude before there is lust arriving or arising in your heart? And Jesus said, Matthew 5, 27, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so there are some who have tried to figure it out, to time it. Do I get 30 seconds? Can I look for 10 seconds? Five, four, three, two, one. I mean, what's the time here? I'll tell you what it is. It is the split second that lust surfaces in your heart. The moment lust surfaces, it's too long. And some idiot will go, well, then I can go two minutes. I'll just hold back the lust while I'm enjoying the view. Wrong-o. You're already there, bro. Job wrote in Job 30, or spoke in Job 31, verse eight, I have made a covenant with my eyes. I like that. I've made a covenant with my eyes. And this righteous man says, how then could I gaze at a virgin? I won't let myself do it. I made a covenant with my eyes. I've shared before, I did youth ministry out in Virginia where everybody wore, you know, three-piece suits, even to the beach. I mean, it was, everything was very seriously dressed up and you, you, didn't, you saw nothing. You know, it, it, it's government, it's military, it's, it's, it's uh, just outside the Washington, D.C. beltway, and so everything was very proper, long dresses for the ladies at church, full suits for the guys, and that was the way it was. And then I moved out to Southern California <laughs> and took my youth group to Newport Beach and that first day on the beach, I was like this the whole day going, oh my goodness. I grew up in California. I had forgotten. I, I, I will, I made a covenant with my eyes, Job says. Psalm 119, 37. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. So there is, there is pre-teaching in the word of God about this eye issue that we look and we gaze at and into sin and it becomes lust in our hearts and lust is adultery. Before the action, Jesus made it clear, it's not just acting on the sin, it's what the sin is doing as it moves about your heart. Number three, the muse. The muse, the look, the gaze, the muse, he sent and inquired about her. So now he's moved to a new level. This is all happening split second. I mean, it's happening very quickly, but he's thinking about her. He's contemplating Bathsheba, this is where fantasy and thought life begins to take over. And that's what's happening with David. He's inquiring, he wants to find out, he wants to know more about her, tell me, explain. You know, It's the guy on the internet or the girl who's scrolling to find out more about this actor or actress who hits the images button to see pictures of this actor or actress. I'm just, I'm just getting information. You're already down the road of lust several miles. David's got multiple wives at the palace at this point. Multiple wives. 
So you could say he's a married man. Very, very, very married. Maybe that's the problem. I think that's the problem with this culture. When a man is at the point where he can have as many women or so many women as he wants or as he has experienced, what's one more? And that is American dating culture. That's the crisis of sex and dating in this country is it's, it's the friends mentality. For those who watched Friends back in the 90s, the friends mentality that you go on a date and you sleep with the person and you go on another date and you sleep with the person. And that's what culture does. And that's what's expected. If you're going out with someone, you must be sleeping with them because that's just the way it is. And it's person after person after person. When I was a kid, we had a name for that. I won't repeat. But for someone who slept around, there was a name for that. Now it is so common, and David had sexually been with so many women that for him in life it was common, and now he sees another one. It's a new model. And he's thinking about her, and he's musing over her. And when you've had so many, what's one more? And the problem with the mentality that has so infected this culture is that more is never enough. It's never enough. I've said before, sin is voracious. Sin is never satisfied. I'm just gonna feed it today so it'll be taken care of so I can wake up tomorrow and it'll be fine. No, you're gonna want more tomorrow. So here's David with all of his many wives, many described as beautiful women, but he sees Bathsheba. There's a look, there's a gaze. Now he's musing over her. He's thinking about her. And you know what? Sin is not satisfied until it gains full control of the headquarters of the heart. Matthew 15, 19, Jesus says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications. By the way, all four of those will be committed by David before the chapter's out. Thefts and false witnesses and slanders, those will all be committed by David before the chapter's out as well. Jesus says, these are the things which defile the man. To eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. You're thinking physically, you've got to think spiritually because spiritual affects the physical. And if the heart's messed up, guess where the physical's gonna go? Same place. If the heart is lusting and musing over sin, that's where the body's gonna go. And so the sin of David lying with Bathsheba, it was underway long before it got under the covers. It's always that way. The truth is we're rarely surprised by our sin. Usually we've thought about it before we act. We make the bed we lie in ahead of time. And so adultery is now calling the shots in David's heart before he even learns that she's a married woman. He's a married man, but he's a king. He's got plenty of wives. He can have one, whatever. Before he finds out that Sheba is the wife of Uriah, he's already musing. He's already in, looking, gazing, musing. He's down this road away. By the way, you know what Bathsheba's name means? Daughter of an oath. Daughter of an oath. What is marriage if not an oath, a covenant promise between a man and a woman? And it has been since the beginning. Jesus clearly tells us in Matthew 19, referring to Genesis chapter two. 
So you have both Old Testament and New Testament that declare one man for one woman for one life. That is God's plan, that's it. Marriage is where this is supposed to take place. One man and one woman, not one man with multiple women or one woman with multiple men. One to one in a one flesh union. Bathsheba is the daughter of an oath and she's married to another. Well, at this point, David is already sinning in his heart. He's already committing adultery in his mind, according to Jesus. And yet, rather than stopping, shutting it down and repenting right then and there, I'm done, I'm not gonna follow through. Father, forgive me for even thinking about this. Number four, the take. The look, the gaze, the muse, the take. Verse four tells us that he took her and he lay with her. Bathsheba has to answer to the Lord for herself. There's a lot of debate on this. Did, did he force her? Well, she, she has to answer for that. We don't know. All, what we do know is that she's never faulted explicitly for this sin. David is. She's not called out for it. Now, she is going to lose the child by this pregnancy, which will be a great heartache for her. But the, the Bible still tells us that David took her. He took her. He's the one with the power. He's the one with the position to control the situation. And if your king calls on you to do something, he's the king. So the, the language here is, is legit. He took her to himself. Before I go any further, let me speak directly to and about sexual sin. At a time when all of the LGBTQ and gender issues are sucking all the oxygen out of the room. That's become the entire focus, even in the church, how do you feel about LGBTQ? And all of that concern, sadly, so many of us in the church, so many Christians are downplaying or ignoring the seriousness of promiscuity and fornication and adultery and pornography. I'm talking about heterosexual. That's been set aside completely. Well, at least it's not LGBTQ. You know what? If you and your house have a gay couple on one side living in a house and a heterosexual couple unmarried on the other side, which one is committing the worst sin? It's both sexual immorality. And yet we've said, no problem, just ignore this one. But this, when the reality is God dealt with sexual immorality at the start, which is all of it, it's all of it. Anything outside God's standard of a man and a woman in a sanctified marriage, that's the standard. Anything outside of that, whatever it is, falls into this category of what the Bible uses, the word in the Greek is pornea, sexual immorality. Now, before I go any further, I know, and I've thought about this I, in the church today, I know it's a source of pain for many people. Sexual immorality, a, a bad reminder of past choices that perhaps you've made, or, or bad mistreatment in this realm by another against you, or maybe you're in it right now. I'm trying not to get eye contact with anybody. Do you know how many people are sitting in church on a Sunday morning that are in the midst of a sexual relationship outside of marriage and don't want anyone to know? 
and others who do know aren't saying anything about it? You might be sitting here this morning going, I don't wanna hear this. The last thing I wanna hear this morning is anything about sexual immorality. I don't need to deal with that. I've got other issues in my life. I need to deal with this. Listen, you've got to hear this. We've got to hear this. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse three. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That word sanctification, it's hagiosmos, it's holiness. That's God's will for your life. Holiness, purity, sanctification. And then Paul says that you abstain from sexual immorality. It's God's will. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. See, that's the way of the world. You know, the, the, the friends mentality of the 90s, that's, that's the world we live in. That was the world of Paul in the first century. That's the way the Gentiles think. That's where the non-believers are. It doesn't matter. Do whatever you want. Lie with whoever you want as many times as you want with as many different people as you want. That's just culture. Not so with you. This is not for us as followers of Jesus Christ. God's will is sanctification, abstaining from sexual immorality. Verse, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul says, flee sexual immorality. He says, every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know? This, this should really shake us to the core. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? When you give your life to Jesus, you hand over your body as well to be indwelt by the spirit of the living God. For God the Father and God the Son to make their abode with you in this vessel, this vessel must therefore be holy. Paul goes on and says, you've been bought with a price. A price, the blood of Jesus, every last drop. Galatians 5, 19, Paul says, here's the deeds of the flesh, they're evident. And number one on the list, sexual immorality, followed by impurity, followed by sensuality or uncontrollable lust. And then he goes and he lists several more deeds of the flesh. And he says, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sexual immorality is not, is not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. And this is not God's will for us, and he knows what it does to us and how it will break us down. And note this, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality lead the list of deeds that are in direct opposition to the fruit of the Spirit. So then he begins the other list with the exact opposite, sexual immorality, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Impurity, the fruit of the Spirit is joy. Sensuality, the fruit of the Spirit is peace. So I ask you this morning, what would you rather have? What sounds better, sexual immorality or love? Impurity or joy? Sensuality or peace? The Bible is clear that sexual immorality is rotten fruit. It's going 
to affect you. If you are involved this morning in some kind of sexual sin, please, for your own sake, stop. Stop where you are. For the sake of others who will be affected by it, stop, repent. Come out of the days and the deception and the delusion and be forgiven and be sanctified and be set free because otherwise this will not end well. A sexually immoral person does not end in a good place. Number five, the consequence. The consequence. The woman conceived. The consequence is the pregnancy, you know what? It's so sad because pregnancy is supposed to be a gift. God created us in such a way that pregnancy could be a joy, that life begins to grow at conception and grows in the womb of a woman and then is birthed and the woman has immediate amnesia because she'll do it again, you know? Pregnancy is a gift of the father but in the context of immorality, you know what? There, there's a pregnancy even of lust which bears sin, which develops into a most hurtful sorrow. Turn in your Bibles, everyone, over to the book of James chapter one, verse 13. James chapter one, verse 13. We're told in the Bible that everything written beforehand was written for us upon whom the ends of the ages have come so that we would learn from these things. David's story in 2 Samuel 11 is described to a T by, by Jacob. We call him James, but Jacob, that's the biblical name. Um, in the letter of James, chapter one, verse 13, where he says, let no one say when he's being tempted or when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by anyone and he himself does not tempt anyone. And for someone who says, well, I thought God tested Abraham. Well, I thought God tested all kinds of people. Well, the word for tested and tempted actually is the same word, but the context is what tells you what it means. God will not test or tempt you into evil. He will not tempt you to do the wrong thing. He will test the strength of your heart, but he will not do so such that it will lead you to immorality. And that's the difference. So when he says God doesn't test anyone, God will not tempt anyone, no, he will never put a lure in front of you that will draw you into sin. As Jesus prayed, he will lead us not into temptation. So that's the Father. But, and now he describes it, verse 14, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Think about David here again. Think about him moving through this, this pattern of looking and gazing and musing and, and, and taking, and now he's into the consequence of all this. Then when lust has conceived, and the language is explicit, lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Don't think that there's a way around this. And by the way, when he says, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, he's not saying that the child of this, of this immoral act is, is sinful. The child is not. 
He's saying what happens with any sin, whenever we are drawn into a lustful situation, is that lust begins to develop in us, it's conceived, and it gives birth to full-blown sin. And then when sin is accomplished, which it wants to accomplish its end, the end is death. It brings forth death. This is the pattern. That's how this story goes. The look, the gaze, the muse, the take, the consequence, and three more. Number six, the cover-up. The cover-up. Verse six tells us, David sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite, So Joab sent Uriah to David, and when Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. He's playing him, folks. Why would you send for me? Oh, I just, I wanna, tell me about the war. What's going on? How's the battle going? How's the fight going? How are you doing? Seeming to be genuinely interested, but you know he's not because he sent for the husband of the wife he's just slept with. And so they talk, and then, David says, verse eight to Uriah, go down to your house, (laughs) wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house and a present from the king was sent after him. He is just buttering him up to do what he needs him to do. But, verse nine, Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. Now, when they told David, saying Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, tents, sukkahs. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Who talks to their king that way? You know who does? A good friend. Uriah was a good friend. Uriah is on the list of David's mighty men. David and Uriah have known each other for a long time. They have fought together. And Uriah is speaking his heart to his friend who also happens to be the king. Well, then David said to Uriah, well, stay here today also and tomorrow I'll let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him and he ate and drank before him and he made him drunk. See the sin just abounding here? And in the evening, he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. David, again, he's trying to play this guy, but it won't work. Uriah is a good man. He is a good, decent, honorable man, and you can look up his name, 2 Samuel 23, verse 39. He is the last man named, not only among David's mighty men, but among 37 specific men who were the chief guard of the mighty men of David. And he's a well-known man. And we see here a man who refuses the comfort of home and wife because he knows as a good soldier, the battle is intense. Intense. (laughs) Thank you. Because they're camping in tents. That's where he knows. The pun is intentional. The ark is in a tent. 
and Israel is camping in tents and Judah are staying in tents in the midst of the battle and Uriah says, I am not gonna go sleep in my comfortable home while my brothers in arms are camping, are in tents, are bivouacked on the frontier in war. I won't do it. That's a good man. This is a good fighting man. By the way, Uriah, his name means God is my light or God is my flame. God is my light and my flame. You know what? There is a great example here just with this man uh, on how to deal with temptation and that is to stay in tents. <laughs> the battles, the temptations, the challenges of this life, listen to me, are temporary. So stay in a tent. You're only camped out here. Don't get comfortable in this world. Don't settle in the house of this world and, and settle for the comforts of this world. 2 Corinthians 5.1 says, we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Indeed, in this we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven inasmuch as having put it on, we will not be found naked. These are just temporary dwellings that will be blown away. Like a tent on a windy mountainside, these bodies are not meant to last this life, not for now. Camp out while you're here. Don't settle. Don't settle. Don't get into the house and stay. Sexual immorality, as we see with David, is like trying to force all the comforts of carnality into a temporary dwelling. And this temporary dwelling is fleeting. It is not to be permanent. I wonder by this time if Uriah's code of honor is making David uncomfortable. David who wouldn't even go out to war in the first place. And Uriah who says, I am, everyone else is camping out. Should I go home and lie with my wife in my comfortable house? And David's gotta be thinking at some level about the palace and the fact that he did lie with Uriah's wife. David now is going to do everything he can to cover his tracks. And when he doesn't, or when it doesn't work, he resorts to treachery. Verse 14, now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. This is the man's death sentence and he's carrying it himself and has no idea. He had written in the letter saying, place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. This is not, it's not like stick him in a tough place and hopefully he'll die. This is David telling Joab, I want this man taken out. So it was, as Joab kept watch on the city, that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. So it's interesting, I don't know if... Joab doesn't know why, he doesn't know what's up. He's just read the missive and he recognizes I'm supposed to put this man in harm's way. What he does is he takes a valiant man and he puts him out to fight with the valiant men. So I'm not gonna say there's anything off of Joab on this, although he knows something nefarious is going on. At least he's put him with the valiant men because that's, maybe that's where I would put him anyway. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab and some of the people among David's servants fell and Uriah the Hittite also died. Number seven, the delusion. The delusion. Here's the delusion. When David got up out of bed on that first evening and shuffled out to the rooftop patio of the palace, was he thinking, who can I kill today? 
What life can I take? Whose family can I destroy? No, but that's what sin does. Sin's looking out ahead. Sin's looking at destruction. Thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And there's this delusion in David's mind. See, sin plays us because sin just goes a little step at a time. The look, the gaze, the muse, the take. You know, it's one little step at a time. I can handle this. Well, I can handle this. Well, I can handle this until we've acted. And now, well, I can make it go away. And it's all a delusion. Verse 18, then Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. He charged the messenger saying, when you finish telling all the events of the war to the king, and if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, the son of Yerubasheth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Tebez? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, well, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So now Joab is sending back coded message so that this servant doesn't know what's going on, but David will get the message that the deed is done. So the messenger departed and came and, and reported to David all that Joab had sent to him to tell. And the messenger said to David, the men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall, so some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Well, David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this thing displease you or upset you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it and so encourage him. So the servant goes back to Joab with words of comfort from the king. What a great king. What a compassionate, understanding king. And he's just calling, he's encouraging us. Now, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband and when the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and she bore him a son. David is burying the treachery in all of this. He deludes himself into thinking life can just go on if I can cover this well. Nobody knows what's happened. Only two people in the story know exactly what took place, David and Bathsheba. And so this can all be forgotten. We can just cover this up, get back to normal. This is what sin does as well. You sin, you realize that. Rather than confession and repentance comes that attitude of let's just cover this and we'll get back to a normal life. We see this all the time when, when an affair happens in a marriage and the marriage ends and there's a divorce. One or both, and I'm not pointing it at, you know, Right now, my, my example, it doesn't matter whose fault it was, but when there's a divorce, let's say a man uh, has an affair, divorces his wife, guess what tends to happen? 99% of the time, he's gonna marry the other woman and then get back to normal as fast as he can. And now, where is he? Well, he's, he's married. He's back in a marital relationship. The first wife is off over here. The kids are somewhere in between and now you've got this mess, but, but at least we're back to normal. And that's, that's how we think rather than repentance and confession before the Lord. And so what David does here is a complete and total cover up. 
And we come to the end result. Cover up the delusion. The end result, number eight, is the death. The death. For the wages of sin is death. But listen to me. It's not necessarily the death of the sinner. The wages of sin is death. It may not be yours. Maybe not immediately. Maybe someone else's. David in his delusional thinking thinks he's got this covered up. I mean, people are gonna assume that Uriah got Bathsheba pregnant before he died tragically in battle. And they're gonna assume now that, oh, good King David, he went and he brought Uriah's grieving wife into the palace. Isn't that great? What a compassionate king. Nine months go by, no one's the wiser. No one picks up on it. Numbers 32 verse 23 says, be sure your sin will find you out. And at the end of verse 27, it says, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Nobody knew but David, Bathsheba, and the Lord. Fully aware, as he always is, that's another delusion that we put on ourselves is that God is unaware of what we're doing. God doesn't see it. The Lord is fully aware. Sin isn't hurtful because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's hurtful. And at the end of chapter 11, there is already the carnage of a man whose life is lost, a marriage that is ruined and destroyed, a wife who is now mourning for this man, but now goes up to the palace to live as a queen. A king who has lied to himself, to this woman, to his warriors and his army, to the people of Israel covered up the whole thing, he is now stolen, he's taken another man's wife. God sees not as man sees, right? Samuel was told that. The Lord sees not as man sees. David was looking on Bathsheba and right back at the beginning, the look, the gaze, the muse, and he was in. And everything that happens after that comes from that early on moment. God was looking into David's heart. He's always looking at the heart. And the way that God is gonna reach this heart of David is absolutely remarkable. And that's chapter 12, and you're gonna have to come back Wednesday night to hear about that. But the weight of this sin is about to come crashing down on David unlike anything that you can imagine. It is going to now mark the rest of David's story and the house of David. There's gonna be more looking, gazing, using, and taking among his own children. There's gonna be more consequence, cover-up, delusion, and death in his own house. This is not gonna end right here. This is going to continue now through this generation and on to the next. Be sure your sin will find you out, and the wages of sin is death. And over in chapter 12, verse 11, I'll give you this much. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own Household. I will even take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. One of those companions is his own son, Absalom. Indeed, you did it secretly. I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Does the Lord forgive David? Absolutely. Of course he does. But forgiveness does not circumvent the consequences of sin. 
especially in this immediate life. In fact, the most dramatic moment of the entire story is not the lust on the rooftop, it's not adultery in the king's chambers, it's not treachery out on the battlefield and a soldier's death. The most dramatic moment comes when grace and forgiveness arrive. Verse 13 of chapter 12, David said to Natan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Natan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. If anyone deserved to die in the story, it's David. But the Lord has taken away your sin. Here's something I don't know we always think about when it comes to sin and cover-ups and all the rest. Forgiveness itself is not always easy to take. When you get to that place, David is going to grieve the consequence of this sin. But much more, David is going to grieve before the Lord. He's going to grieve in the forgiveness. Psalm 51 is a beautiful telling of this. You can see the very heart of David in Psalm 51. I'm not gonna do it this morning, but, but you could put it all, sum it up this way. Bitterness, one commentator wrote, bitterness is the sorrow brought by the consequences of forgiven sin. The consequences of forgiven sin. The sin is forgiven. God is good and gracious, but the consequences remain and are often very bitter. Listen to me. Whatever your sin may be, be it against the body or outside the body, if you turn to Jesus, the Lord has taken away your sin. That's the wonder of amazing grace. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is, is within me, bless his holy name, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Psalm 103, verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his grace toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. God takes away sin. God forgives sin. God redeems from sin. How does he do it? Where did God take David's sin? He took it and he put it on the shoulders of the son of David. But now the son of David is gonna bear the sin of David. This is a difficult teaching in part because we get all the way up to chapter 11 and, and David, David, he's our man. If he can't do it, well, he can't. <laughs> we get to this point of, I'm, I just I love David, I love his heart, I love his fighting nature. I, you know, he makes some mistakes, man, he's, he's, this is the kind of person I wanna be. And then chapter 11, you go, this is not the kind of person I wanna be. And yet he is forgiven because God takes this horrible sin, all of it, the murder, the adultery, the lust and the carnality, all of it, the lies, the deception, the thievery, and he puts it on the shoulders of the son of David. You know that God purposed in advance that even David himself would be saved by the grace that would come through the son of his lineage? It's mind-boggling. Now, some of you might say, well, that's still not fair. This is not a fair situation. Uriah died because of David's sin. 
He got the wages of death. The child, as you'll see in chapter 12, the child born of this pregnancy will die, not in birth, after birth. The child will be born and then is going to die because of the sin. How is this fair? God has Uriah. God has the child. But it is absolutely true, and just to say this morning, grace is not fair. If grace was fair, we would all be in serious trouble. Grace is not fair. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. Grace is not fair. The grace of God in Jesus saves us from our sin after the fact and beforehand. And it's funny because it's often in the beforehand that people say, that's not fair. That's not fair. Why does God say no to that? That's not fair. That's grace saving you from sin. And after the fact, when the fallout is not what it should be, that is not fair. None of us get what we deserve and that is eternal condemnation. But therefore in Christ there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we could learn from this chapter in David's life, we could save ourselves and others a whole lot of hurt. That's God's concern with this. This is not a judgment. This is not a coming down on. This is not a you're worse than others because you did this versus someone else not doing that or whatever. This is a reality that we could save ourselves from a lot of pain and heartache and pain and heartache we cause others if we would just learn from David. 1 Corinthians 13, uh, sorry, verse 10, ver, uh, chapter 10, verse 13 says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. David's temptation here, common. This is not a new thing. It's not just an old thing. It says, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is always the way out, always the way of escape. Turning to him in any given moment is an escape from sin. Jesus, here I am, here I find myself up on the rooftop and what I see, I shouldn't be looking at. Jesus, forgive me and you are out. There's a way of escape right there. He's the way of escape. But listen, as we conclude this morning, I wanna add one more thing. One thing that is part of, well, the best way to fight against our sin in this world. Best way to fight against sin is to do so on the front line of battle. To stay in the battle and not to stay back at the palace. To be out and engaged in the fight. Listen to this. Ephesians chapter six, verse 13, this should be familiar to many of you. Paul writes, therefore take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. 
Listen, apply that. You can wander the rooftop half, half awake. But I said as we began, David wandered out onto the roof unarmed. He was unarmed. He was not prepared for the battle before him. If you wear truth on your loins, if righteousness is a breastplate, guess what? You're covered against sexual sin. If your feet are shod with the gospel of peace, you're not gonna walk into sexual immorality. If you are carrying the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, your hands are gonna be too busy fighting the good fight of the faith. And if you pray in the spirit, your very heart will be protected against the lust that took you out or is trying to take you out in the first place. What I'm saying here is Jesus is the way out, but you can also, as he is the way, fight your way out. Fight your way out. Don't cave in to the sexual values of a corrupt culture. Stand for what is holy and pure and the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Let that be our standard in the church. The fact that the debates are raging over LGBTQ right now, how we got there that that's the first discussion the church is having? How about sexual immorality in the first place? How about what the Bible talks about when it comes to our bodies and our lives and our marriages and our relationships? And the reality is every single person in this room has been involved with, touched, or affected by sexual sin in some form. And I'm not saying that everyone here has committed sexual sin. Everyone's been touched by it. What's really remarkable to me is the vast growing numbers of Christians who are being affected by all the LGBTQ stuff. There are so many hurts and there are so many violations of this godly constraint, this godly prohibition, this law of God in the scriptures that says anything outside of the marriage of one man with one woman for life is sexual immorality and it's not acceptable to God. We could avoid so much hurt if we would accept the holy constraints of the Lord. And so the Lord in these constraints also speaks comfort. So let me end with a word of grace. After describing so much of this, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, such were some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen our hearts for every good work and word. Be comforted in the Lord. If any of this is where you're at right now, if you are in a sexually immoral relationship, stop, repent, confess, Come to the Lord. You're not alone in this. You don't have to keep going down that road. And if you've been hurt by it, pray. Speak the truth in love. Sons, daughters, family members, maybe that you know that are living a lifestyle that is outside the will of God, speak truth. Don't be afraid of speaking truth. Do it in love. I love you too much not to say this. And let us be comforted and strengthened in our hearts 
by the Lord Jesus. He washes, he forgives, and he comforts even in conviction. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I lift up your name this morning. And I'm reminded, and I speak again, Lord, that it is because of you that we consider these things in the first place. It, it begins with your holiness and your righteousness. But Father, you know what is best for us and you know what works for us and you know what hurts us. And you know, Lord Jesus, that sexual immorality, it ruins us. Sin against the body, as your word says. And so right now, Lord, I, I wanna pray for all those in our fellowship who are currently entrapped, Lord, in either a sexually immoral relationship, um, enslaved, Lord, perhaps to pornography. I pray, Father, for the husband or the wife whose eyes are looking beyond their marriage right now. And I pray for the conviction of your Holy Spirit to cause all to stop and to turn to Jesus. I pray, Father, for the conviction of the truth to settle on all of us as we speak to friends and family, that we don't stand up trying to be judgmental of a sinful world, but that we who are and have been sinful ourselves, such were some of us that we have been washed and we can proclaim that washing and we can offer that gospel narrative to the world. And I just ask, Lord Jesus, that you will make us bold in a world that is so depraved to speak truth in love. And Lord, for anyone in our midst this morning that is in pain over this very topic, may they hear you, Jesus, saying, come. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In Jesus' name.